Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello to everyone in the room here at the Carlo Vivari International Film Festival in the Czech Republic, and also to those listening in around the world via a podcast app. My name is Scott Feinberg. I'm a journalist with The Hollywood Reporter, and this is a special edition of KVIFF Talks, which is also doubling as a live episode of The Hollywood Reporter's Award Show podcast. Today, it is my great honor to have as my guest one of my country's most admired stage and screen actors a man who was described in 2007 by no less an authority than Ben Brantley of the New York Times as, quote, the finest American theater actor of his generation, close quote, who has since racked up seven Emmy nominations for his work on TV, two for Ray Donovan, the drama series on Showtime in which he starred for seven seasons, and whose filmography includes the Best Ensemble SAG Award winning and Best Picture Oscar winning film, Spotlight. He is also a social activist who recently co-founded Blue Check Ukraine, an organization that's helping to get money to the front lines of that country, and uh, much more, which we will talk about over the next hour. So would you please join me in welcoming Liev Schreiber. Thank you. Yeah. Apologize. I'm I'm not used to shaving, and I've cut myself very badly. <laughs> so if I start to spout blood, please tell me. Well, especially with all the photographers right there. <laughs> Thank you for making time to do this. And uh, I wonder, first of all, if you would help me to settle before we get down to more important matters. There has been an, a long-standing debate with within my friend circle. Is it correct, Liev or leave? I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think it's Liev. Liev. Okay. I think so. Okay. I mean, yeah, I think that's how Ukrainians say it. Well, this may, this may relate to the next question, which is how we usually begin with this. Um, can you just share if folks do not know, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Uh, I was born in San Francisco, California. Um, my father was a carpenter and my mother is a painter and they moved. My father was also an actor. Uh, they moved very quickly up to a Dukabor community in, um, uh, Northwestern Canada, which is something that you did back in the sixties. <laughs> and uh, then they promptly split up and my mother took me to New York 
uh, when I was, I think, three years old. And that's pretty much, I mean, my memories don't really start until I was about 24. So, <laughs> But you're, uh, not, you're not really joking. That's not too much of an exaggeration, right? Like, what is that about? Because you have said that most of your childhood is a bit of a blur. I don't think that's just a coincidence. It was kind of a little all over the place, wasn't it? No, I, my childhood was all over the place. I fortunately do have an authentic memory problem. And so yeah. I don't really remember most of it. Yeah. I know, uh, when my grandfather died, I actually went to a psychiatrist and a clinical psychologist to have my head examined <laughs> as it were. And they said that there was nothing wrong with me. It's, uh, you know, other than I had the normal hyperactive disorders of somebody like me and, uh, but that they, they assumed it was some trauma or something, but they don't know why my memory is the way it is. So your grandfather, who you mentioned, this is your mother's father, sounds like from everything I've read and even things you said yesterday at the press conference here really um, had a profound impact on you, in a sense almost raised you. Can you talk about what it was about that relationship that was so special? Well, you know, he was, there was no, there were no men in my life. I was growing up with a single mother and my mother was a taxi driver. And, you know, back then it was illegal, you know, to have, and my mother also uh, was a very progressive person and didn't believe in school. So uh, she would take me around in the taxi in the passenger seat, which was illegal. So I had to hide under the thing. And it was a, you know, she was, um, it was a strange, you know, growing up in the Lower East Side at that time, you know, she was into squats. So these were buildings that had no electricity, no uh, hot water and, you know, we used candles. And it was uh, my grandfather. He actually had a real house with heat and <laughs> an oven and food. And and I always I think I loved going there. And I think on top of that, he he um, he taught he taught me about man things like what it is to be a man, or yeah. at least what he thought it was to be a man. Right. There was a moment, I believe, when you were in sixth grade, when it first maybe occurred to you in a, in a serious way that you might go down a path like the one you've gone down. What, what happened when you were in sixth grade that kind of exposed you to acting, I guess, uh, for the first time? Oh, you mean being in the band or, or the first time I did a play? Well, I think it started with the band, right? Yeah, I played bass clarinet. I was in the, my mother wanted me to be a musician and uh, she made me play piano and violin, which I hated. <laughs> and I found the bass clarinet and for some reason I liked that. So I played the bass clarinet and we played the Mendelssohn March at a production of Midsummer Night's Dream. And I was watching these, you know, 13 year olds doing Shakespeare and uh, I thought they were terrible. <laughs> and I thought that there was an opening for someone who could do it better, maybe. And uh, so I, I auditioned for the next school play the next year. When I got into the Friends Seminary, I, I auditioned for the school play after that. And were you getting, did, was it something that you just felt right doing from the beginning? Or, or uh, I mean, obviously it was cultivated over a lot of years after that. And we'll talk about, um, you know, your time at, at Hampshire College and Amherst and um, Yale School of Drama, but I mean, was were were people giving you feedback as early as as high school that you've got something talent, something good here? 
No, you, you know, for all of her craziness, my mother really, really was very into classical things, especially literature and music. And so there was always a lot of classical music in the house and there was always literature and Shakespeare. She, I was reading Shakespeare with her as soon as I could read. I had a pretty high reading level and uh, we would read it out loud and it was just something strange that she did. So uh, it's a pretty uncommon for an American child to have that level of fluency with Shakespeare so that they were very surprised that I, that I knew the plays already. I right. knew most of the monologues from that particular play. Um, yeah, so I had a, I think I had a sense of the music and, um, the rhythm of the text, but, you know, like I was also picking the right text, you know, it's the great thing about actors is they're endowed by the people who write for them. So, you know, you play Hamlet, Hamlet, everyone thinks you're smart. So <laughs> this was, I had picked good playwrights. Well, so you go off to Hampshire college. What was the, if you, if somebody had asked you, midway through there, you know, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Were you already set on this being a career as well? No, I was studying animal behavior. Really? And I was working on a senior thesis about why dogs bark. <laughs> uh, and it was incredibly fun. <laughs> I spent hours with, uh, it, Hampshire had an incredible collection of dogs. And uh, I would go down in various outfits and record their barks and see if they would bark at different frequencies. Uh, the teacher there was one of the preeminent experts on UPD and UCD dogs, which are uh, working dogs, shepherding dogs, conducting dogs, border collies, and protecting dogs like Anatolies and Maremmas and Pulis. Those are, and uh, I didn't think acting was a really intelligent career, and my mother didn't have any money, and it, it seemed like if anyone was going to make any money in this family, it wasn't going to be through <laughs> acting. But I guess something must have happened along your time there because not just everybody gets into the Yale School of Drama. In fact, it's what, like 15 kids a year or something like 14. that? 14. 14? Yeah. That's a big deal. Um, on what basis do you think you were accepted? Uh, well, the dog paper wasn't very good. <laughs> um, and I applied, uh, I had a writing teacher and I wanted to apply as a playwright and I wanted to apply as an actor and he said, apply as an actor and you'll get in. So... I did, and I was, actually, no, first I got into the, I, I did a summer, a year program at the Royal Academy in London, and then I came back and I applied for the master's program at Yale, and I did that, and um, I got in, so. Yeah. Being there, I know you just get, uh, it's a barrage of, of productions that you're part of, dozens over those, whatever, three years, I guess, but were you always at that time thinking, in the future, I'm going to work exclusively on the stage or because I don't think they do or, or did screen acting training, did they? No, not at all. It was all classical training. Um, but the assumption is that, if, you know, if you can if you can if you can do that, you can do anything else. Mm -hmm. I also, to be honest with you, I, I thought it was all kind of a joke. Like this was a, I, I, you know, this was a window of opportunity for me in my young life to study theater. I wasn't going to do that for a living. It wasn't. <laughs> It was just really, really fun. It was something that I was uh, obsessed with and passionate about. But I was prepared to be a copywriter when I got out of school. And actually, I was for the first couple of years. So And like, didn't I saw you also work, was it masonry or something? Yeah, I was a, a, a stonemason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my, it could have my, gone in a very, very different It was worse. Direction. I wasn't a stonemason. I was a mason's assistant. Okay. <laughs> just the guy who mixes the cement. 
So on a more serious note, I guess you, you graduate from Yale in 92. And I think within a year is when you lost your grandfather. And it seems like that really threw you for a bit of a loop and, and may have affected the way you move forward. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it was the beginning of my memory crises. Like I, I had, it was when he died, you know, I was very close to him and, uh, and he never talked about the past. He never talked about where he was from. He never, he never spoke Ukrainian. He never spoke Polish. He never spoke Yiddish. He never talked about anything. Uh, he hated Germans until, of course, my brother married a German, and then he loved Germans. Um, but he would—he was very, very uh, quiet about his past. And and when he died, I was already having memory issues, and I thought, well, shit, if I forget this person who I know nothing about, it's going to be really horrible. And it was sort of the beginning of creative writing. And I wrote a script about a guy who goes to Ukraine to find out what it is to be Ukrainian, and he gets scammed by a prostitute and the mafia and all those other terrible things happen to him and he ends up penniless in the streets of Kiev thinking that's what it is to be Ukrainian and it was a very dark movie and while I was uh working on that I read I was reading fiction for Bill Buford at the New Yorker and I read a short story called uh, the very rigid search uh, by this kid 19 year old kid named Jonathan Safran Foer and I asked Bill if I could meet this writer because I wanted to adapt that short story instead of what I was doing. Because I felt what Jonathan had done about Ukraine was more informed and filled with uh, compassion and humor. Uh, extraordinary that a 19-year-old man could write that articulately about love but, and family, which was what I was trying to do. I just wasn't a skillful enough writer. And so I met Jonathan and... He's 19 and he comes up with a Dwayne Reed shopping bag with the 400 page manuscript in it. <laughs> and he says, it's not a short story. And I go, oh, no. And he goes, Thump. <laughs> and it was the manuscript. Right. And he, he gave it to me and I read it and I said, I just want to do a short story. <laughs> and he said, well, you have to do it all. And I said, I can't do it all. I'm, I'm not good enough to do it all. And he said, OK, well, you can have it. And. Two weeks later, it was on the cover of the New York Times book review. You know, ostensibly the most popular book in America at that point, and that was a tremendous amount of pressure. And we'll come back to how that became your directorial debut, Everything is Illuminated. But first, I guess, going out into the real world as a, as a professional actor now, it seems like you were working pretty quickly at a high level on the stage, Within a year, Hamlet at the public, playing Hamlet. I mean, this is not not something that everybody gets to, to do. But I wonder what you were finding in terms of screen acting opportunities where I think there's sometimes less imagination about what a person can do with screen acting. And I've heard you previously talk about how maybe it can be for, for everybody, they're gonna, their opportunities are somewhat... Um, shaped by their, you know, face. And you found, I think, that you're, you, you've said that I think your face made people think of you specifically for certain kinds of parts. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think with the theater stuff, um, I had a, a lot of success early on, mostly because I had the bright idea to try to be a big fish in a small pond. 
there were not many American actors who wanted to do classical theater. And so there was really just two of us. It was me and Michael Stuhlbarg. And between the two of us, we got every major role in every Shakespeare play. I was Hamlet, and he was King John. I was Iago. He was, you know, so we played them all. And, uh, uh, yeah, I think because of my eyebrows and my Slavic fat pads, people in the film industry saw me as like a bad guy, like I could do bad guys really well. And uh, I think Iago was very popular. But actually, my first job was Nora Ephron, who saw me. And I, I think there was like a perception. She saw me in Henry V as Henry V. And she thought it would be really funny to have this very big, like masculine-looking, hairy guy be a transvestite right. uh, in, a, in a comedy about a suicide hotline. Mixed nuts. It's like a very unhappy transvestite. Yes, yes. yes. Um, so that was like my first... That's how my first movie happened. That was 94. And then I guess weirdly, because I feel like not that many people in Hollywood over, you know, overall percentage are that literate in theater. But it, I guess it did in a way also affect your, your theatrical uh, resume sort of led to Scream as well, right? Scream was a, like I had a meeting at Dimension with uh, Bob Weinstein. And, you know, I had just, I was getting paid, like, I was playing Hamlet, Iago, Henry V at, uh, in, in the New York, in Central Park, you know, the biggest theater, biggest Shakespeare theater in America. And you, I was making at the most $800 or $500 a week, nothing. And, uh, I met Bob Weinstein for Dimension and he had this movie called Scream and I didn't give a shit. I didn't know, but he told me he would give me $20,000 to walk down the stairs and get in a car. And I was like, <laughs> let's do it. You had some college debts at that point. Yeah. yeah I and mean. It, I was, I was, yeah, I was $70,000 in debt from graduate school. And I said, let's do it. Can we walk down a few yeah. times? Yeah. yeah can I, can I? <laughs> Um, so, well, yeah. that was a big year for you because there was also Big Night. That was also Ransom, which I guess maybe was your first large scale movie somewhere around then. But, um, you know, those those early years also Walk on the Moon in 1998. Uh, but I think the thing that I want to emphasize from from the outset here, because it, it, it applied then and it continues to apply now, is how often even though the, the pay is generally non-competitive, how often you go back to the theater. And this includes, but is not limited to Glengarry Glenn Ross. You won the Tony for that in 2005. Talk Radio, 2007, another Tony nomination. A View from the Bridge, 2010, another Tony nomination. There's been others in between. But I guess for somebody who is not an actor and might ask why, you know, if if the kind of cushier life is in screen acting why do you keep going back what is the answer to that it's the most fun to the theater is the, uh, being on a stage in front of a live audience um I, you probably feel it a little bit right now yeah you know what i mean yeah sure. there's an energy and the energy is very complicated you can do things with it you can make them do things they can make you do things you can make other actors do things. And if the writing's good, there's a kind of unified theme in the back of it that is in a, that's getting expressed. And, and there's nothing like that. There's nothing like that experience of being in a dark room with 500 people resonating together. One of the 
first times that I, I think I really was very impressed and aware of, of what you were doing. And I think it was, seems to have been the case for a lot of people because this, this ended up with uh, resulting in Emmy and Golden Globe nominations was when you played Orson Welles in the TV movie RKO 281. This is 1999, a movie about the making of Citizen Kane. I believe you, first of all, Orson Welles and you, these two great voices, different when I know you worked on it, but it's it, in hindsight, great casting. I know you put on some extra pounds to play Orson Welles, but just... I'm uh, very good at putting on weight. <laughs> it's the other thing I struggle right. with. I put on 20 pounds for yeah. this interview. That well, was, done. Yeah. well done. Well <laughs> done. Um, no, so I guess I, I wonder, though, did that feel like uh, a, a some something shifted there? It seems like the industry looked at you a little bit differently after that. I don't think so. No? I, you know, I, I was terrified. It's really, you know, because I was just such a big fan of Orson Welles and my mother, you know, was like, you're going to play Orson Welles? And I was like, I don't really have a choice. It's a job, Ma. I still have the... And my whole family was, uh, it was very embarrassing. Um, but I think it's that thing that, you know, they associate you with the roles you play. And so it was smart for me to start Shakespeare because everybody thought I was smart. I wasn't. I was just doing Shakespeare, you know. And the same thing happened. That I, they cast me as Orson Welles. Everybody thought I was smart. That was the beginning of me thinking, oh, maybe I'll be a director. You know, they all think I can direct now. So, <laughs> you know. um, it's move. true. That's how it is. <laughs> it's like after I made that movie, everybody was like, you should direct. I'm like, really? I just played a director. That's... <laughs> Is that all it takes? <laughs> Reverse method. Um, so, Caden Leopold, I think, was your first time with Hugh, right? Hugh was amazing. Yeah, and my guys, first time yeah. getting to hang out with Hugh. That's 2001. Then there were, I guess, a string of these really kind of large-scale, star-driven, big projects, sort of within a short period of time, Manchurian Candidate remake, with that's all from hanging out with you everything Hugh all Jackman. of that happened from hanging out tell, with you tell Jack. me what how, how you mean because i was going to say manchurian candidate the omen is two manchurian candidates oh four the omens oh six and then x-men with you x-men origins wolverine is 2008 so just this idea of how did how did hugh lead to that well because hugh was like this beautiful guy you know <laughs> who's like working out all the time and disciplined and meditating and never drinking too much and super kind and super generous and just an amazing person. And I was, I was like, it can't be real, you know, because he's an actor, you know, actors are a mess and it was real. And, uh, he, he started to ask me why I didn't work out. And I was like, well, I don't work out really. And you know, the very cynical kind of side of me was like, because I generally think that actors work out because they can't act. <laughs> um, and he said, why would you throw away that tool? Cause your body's a tool. And I'm someone who trained early on in my life as a dancer. So I, I believe in that. And I, um, I do believe that my body's a tool. I just never th thought it needed to be muscular. Uh, and it was painful making it muscular. And, and he said, come work out with me. And I said, okay. And we started to work out. And as soon as I started to have that physique, all of these jobs came. Like suddenly I was the macho guy, you know, it was like, <laughs> no, I just have muscles now. You know, it was like, 
I played Orson. I was a director. Right. I had muscles. I could be a superhero. So it was, <laughs> and it was great because the, those jobs are very lucrative. I bet. Yeah. I bet. Um, now it was in the midst of that same run of movies that I mentioned that uh, a couple things happened. One, I believe that's when you first met and actually worked with Naomi Watts, right? That was the, I guess the Painted Veil was the first time you guys. We didn't meet on the Painted Veil. We met, we met at the Met Ball. Okay. I was, uh, 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 Elijah Wood and I went to the Met Ball to try and promote Everything Everything. is Illuminated. And she was there and we have friends in common and they had been trying to set us up for a long time, but I, I thought that she was much too pretty and famous for me. So I was nervous to talk to her. And she came up after the dinner and she asked me if I wanted to go dancing. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and that was, we sort of were, in, you know, together nice. after that. And, and, and The Painted Veil is a nice movie. That was Painted Veil was like her getting me a job. <laughs> she was like, I want to bring my new boyfriend on my right. movie. And I was like, yep. She wants to bring her new boyfriend. <laughs> Works for and they you, gave yeah. me a part. Yeah. So I was like, okay. Well, the other thing, as, as you just brought up with Elijah Wood is everything is illuminated came together. That was in 2005, your directorial debut. Interestingly enough, shot in the Czech Republic. Right. And I believe screened for the first time, maybe not even in a finished version at this festival. Talk about, we know why you were, you know, we know this from what you said earlier about what drew you to the story, but directing for the first time, what was your experience like? It was terrible. I was, uh, I was terrified and, um, I had really over, I really overestimated my abilities and which is something that I normally do. And it's something that I like to do. It's something I like to, I like to, I was talking to Brett Morgan about David Bowie, who, who, who obviously he worked with and who I had the great good fortune to spend some time with. And the one thing that I always loved about David Bowie is that he was always reinventing the wheel. He was always doing something different and new. And the minute he got to a place of success or one plateau, he would completely change everything and do something else. And that's how we got most of that extraordinary music and, and that extraordinary life. Um, and so for me, it was always like, well, why wouldn't you be able to do that? Why can't you write? Why can't you direct? Why can't you produce? Why can't you, what's so hard? What's the mystery? Do it fail, learn. That's always been my motto. It's like the things that I did badly were the most important things to me because of the things that I learned the most from. But to do something badly in front of a lot of people can be very painful. And that's also a great lesson too, because that's a lesson in ego, which is an important lesson for any actor or any person who exists in the public eye, because eventually it's going to go away. So you you should probably work it out early on. Um, so I, at first, uh, I had some trouble with the studio, and and they wanted the film to be PG instead of R. And I had written and designed the film to have all of these kind of interior. The dog has this sexual fantasy about Jonathan, <laughs> and it's this consistent through line in the movie that had to get pulled out. It was pretty offensive, I guess. But everybody had these kind of interior sexual fantasies. And there was a lot of that in Jonathan's book that I really loved. And the structure of the thing was built on that and it got yanked out. So I had to rebuild the film as something else because they thought it would be successful as a teaching tool for the Holocaust, which I didn't. Um, but of course, over time, I came to see their point and the value of that. And, 
It's just about growing as an artist and coming to understand things. And it's like now I, I see younger filmmakers and writers and actors say things like, oh, fuck that and fuck this. And, you know, what if, so what if I want a, an eight-minute take? You know, you're, you're, you're just boring the hell out of the audience. You know, that's the only problem. And they're like, I don't care about the audience. Well, you will yeah. one day. <laughs> one day you will. And I'm not going to say it, but you will. Well, and I guess, though, you did, you know, inevitably, if you're going to direct a movie, no matter how it goes, you're going to learn some problem-solving skills. And I think when I think of that movie... The first thing, of, you know, the first thing that comes to mind just visually is the sunflowers as far as and, and I read that the way you achieved that was not an easy uh, undertaking. Can you explain? Yeah, we were driving all over Czech Republic to find sunflower fields. And the problem is sunflowers are seasonal, so there weren't any. Um, but my brilliant DP, Maddie Libetique and, uh, Mark, who is our, uh, artistic director, we found this field and we said, well, why don't we try to grow our own field of sunflowers? And we pulled out a farmer's almanac and we timed when we thought we would be ready to do that scene and we planted sunflowers and they grew and they were perfect. And uh, we showed up on the day, and it was one of those miracles. The guys had rigged a cable cam before I got there. And uh, it was just like, you know, two football fields full of these incredible sunflowers that, you know, how they follow the sun as they uh, follow the sun's trajectory. As, as it, and we just timed it out perfectly when they'd be facing the... Anyways. No, it's beautiful, yeah. beautiful. Um, I don't know if you would say that this one is similarly personal to the way, obviously, there was a personal connection with Everything is Illuminated, but Defiance, which was a few years after that, Edward Zwick, for the first time, I think, you working with him, you guys uh, did Pawn Sacrifice again a few years after that, but here you're playing one of these uh, Bielski brothers, I think it was Daniel Craig and Jamie Bell were the others, who resisted the Nazis and fought back from the forest and all of that. Uh, it seems like, you know, it's possible that it would have come out of the same sort of curiosity about your grandfather's background and where you came from and all of that. Uh, is that overanalyzing? No, it's absolutely true. My grandfather was, uh, you know, it's, it's not typical in Jewish homes for the children to be, because it's such a tra tradition, a Talmudic tradition of academia and scholarly and religious stuff. It's not, often that you have Jewish children who are encouraged to be athletes and are physical. And my grandfather was all of those things. He was a boxer. He was a bodyguard. He was a hockey player. He was a football player. And these were all things that as a young kid, I was deeply admired. I remember I worked on my grandfather. He was a butcher and I worked on his truck. He delivered meat to restaurants. And I was probably, this is one of the few memories I have. It might also be a dream, so <laughs> I don't know. But I was in my grandfather's truck, and, and uh, he, he had to stop really short, and the car behind him hit him. My grandfather was not very big. He was, he was probably 5'7". I, so I don't know how I got so big. It was probably my father. But he was probably about 5'7". And, and the, the car hit the van, and I looked in my grandfather's rear view mirror, and I saw this humongous man get out of the car, really angry, like banging on my grandfather's truck. And my grandfather looked at me and he just went, just sit there. 
and he put the car in park, he turned it off, he opened the door and he walked around, he got out of his door, and I was too terrified to look at the rear view mirror because I knew that my grandfather might get killed and I was really scared. And I turned my head away and then I heard whoomp. And then my grandfather coming and slowly, calmly gets in the car and he drives the truck away. <laughs> and I noticed when we had stopped at Dubrov's to deliver the meat that there was a huge dent in the side of the truck about the size of that man's body. And so when I saw Defiance, I'd been asked to do a lot of Holocaust movies. And you know, in many ways, so much of, as an actor, like so much of what you're doing when you're exploring character and you're, is you're trying things on, you know? Um, and if you have the luxury of being successful like I was, you get to try a lot of different things on. So I was trying things on that I thought were versions of my grandfather. And so there was a lot of Jewish roles. There was a lot of Holocaust films. But when I saw Defiance, I was like, that's the first one where they're telling the story of the Jews fighting back. Because in the Holocaust Museum, they have all of these monuments to the Jews that died, rooms full of glasses and shoes. And over in the corner, there's a tiny little room, tiny, not even a room, it's two walls relegated to the pictures of the partisans, the people who said, fuck this, I'm going to fight back. And Defiance was a story about the Bielski Atriad, which was a group of partisans who not only fought back, but they thrived and had something like 80 children. So there was a lot of fun in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> killing Nazis and making babies. Right, right. And this was a story that I thought was worth trying to tell. Uh, yeah. How do you, like as time has gone by, has the way in which you pick projects changed over the years? Are you looking for different things now than you did, let's say, 10 20 years ago? Well, there was a period where I, where I tried really hard to be in kids' movies um, because I have kids now, and, and I, you know, they were really bored by everything I did, so I thought, well, I should do something that they would like, and they were bored by that too. <laughs> Can we take as a, as a case study, you get a script called Spotlight. It's going to be a true ensemble, a large cast of... Um, I don't know who, who was already on board when you came on or what you knew about it, but take me through your decision to be part of that and how it all, it feels like one where sometimes things just kind of come together beautifully, and I, I, but I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Tom McCarthy and I went to school together. He was at Yale in the acting class behind me. All of those actors are my very close friends, and... Um, I, uh, I was just really lucky that Tom asked me to be in it. And um, it's where I got to meet Marty Baron, who's one of, the, one of my heroes and one of the most extraordinary people I've ever had. The, the editor of the Washington Post. The editor of the, the Washington who Post, played, who at yeah. the time was the editor of the Boston Globe and right. sort of um, uh, led the charge against the Catholic Church in Boston, which was um, uh, at that point and so something that was unheard of. It was just... It was just really, really terrific writing on Josh Singer and Tom McCarthy's part. That's the thing, you know? It's like, that's where it starts. I had a great teacher at Yale. Uh, uh, Lloyd Richards was the director of Yale when I was there, and he was really smart. He said that, you know, you're the instrument of the playwright. 
So get it out of your head if you think there's anything else going on. You're the instrument of the playwright. The problem is there aren't many playwrights left. Um, but when you find some of these great playwrights go on to screenwriting and you find the work that they do and that, that work has some, you know, sometimes film have that connectivity that the theater has, you know, like uh, being in a room with a bunch of people, ha there's a very powerful sense of community, which was the thing that I always loved the most. But when you do something like that, that's comes off the screen because of what it is, you feel that again and it's very uh, rewarding so that was released in 2015 already you for two years had been on tv as ray donovan this boston bred hollywood fixer um on showtime's drama series called ray donovan and i wonder i think it was really your first foray into series television was that something that you were seeking at the time? Uh, was how, basically what sold you on the idea? Because when you sign up for something like that, what are you? You're committing potentially seven years at, at the outset. And I think in the beginning you com you sign for five, okay, and then you renew if they yeah. And for you, let's just know at the time you're based in New York. The show is going to shoot if it went forward in Los Angeles. It's a lot. A lot of stuff must have gone into whether to even pursue the pilot. What was, take me back to that moment about what, when you decided it was worth going for. The real story isn't very glamorous. That's all right. That's good. <laughs> Naomi was a bit, much bigger star than me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we had two children and we were flying all over the world with her to do these movies. And, um, the kids were getting big enough that they needed to be in school and they needed some, consistency and to be living in one place and so we talked about it and she said that she wanted to live in LA because she had a nice house there and she liked it there it was more like Australia and there's the beach and everything and, and I not a big fan but I thought okay I'll try to get a job in LA right. and I call and I'll try to get a job that will last so that I can be in the same place all the time so that when you know she works my work is always there so there's always someone at home and I asked my agents, Could I, can I get a job in TV? And they were like, well, we'll try. And the, they found Ann Bitterman, and she had this script called Ray Donovan about a Southie fixer. Can we just note, at that point, I guess she was primarily known for Southland, right? Yeah, okay. right, exactly. And uh, I thought, well, I met Ann, and I thought she was brilliant. And I thought um, it was a good idea. They let me help with the casting and the writing and things and and directing and i also thought it would be good for me to to get practice working in front of a camera over and over and over and over again every day i thought that would be a really interesting experience and it was for a while yeah <laughs> well so just to put a couple markers on that run because it was it ended up being seven seasons plus the movie that just came out this year I think she was gone after the first two. And and then I think in the fifth is when you guys relocated to New York. Did those changes, yeah. how did they affect your life? Well, Naomi wanted to go back to New York. And I had the show now in Los Angeles. So I told them that I had to leave the show because 
Naomi and the kids wanted to go back to New York and they said that they would move the show. And I was like, you sh that's not a good idea. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> and they did. And I was very grateful to them. And, you know, obviously, cause I, I, I didn't want to be, I, we had tried, you know, Naomi and I were, were sort of be, we had tried to do it where the kids and her would go to New York for a while and I'd be in LA by myself and I didn't like it at all. So I didn't want to be away from the kids. So I, it was time to quit the show. And when I said that I, I had to go home, they said, well, we'll move to the show to New York. So they were like my family. There you go. Playing a character over that length of time. Again, not something I think you'd ever really done before. If you hadn't done serious TV, when, when would you have, um, what are the, most rewarding and most challenging parts of that? Is it something that you find you had to work to keep interesting for yourself to keep interesting for the audience? Or was it, was that not even a concern? All of those. I, yeah. I think, I think the, the, the best thing about playing a character over that period of time is that you get to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into, into the exploration of a character. And for me, it was this thing about reductive, that reductive acting, like, like you don't need to do that much. And in fact, particularly when you're a lead, you kind of function as the eyes of the audience. You are the perspective of the audience and learning how to manage that, because that was never the way I approached acting. I was always a character actor. So for me, it was always about being the object uh, of being the antagonist or the reactive character, the character that made you reactive. I like comedy, you know, and I liked villainy. I liked all of those things. I liked fun roles. And I didn't think I liked playing leads, but it got interesting trying to figure out how to manage the audience's perspective and how you could do that. And over time, how you could get a character to a point where they would say one or two lines an episode. Well, this was the really interesting thing is like, he's obviously a character of few words, sometimes as few as that. Does that mean that it becomes much more, your work becomes much more dependent on thinking out and, and executing the physicality of him? Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing about playing Ray was the way I thought about it was you would ratchet up tension ratchet up tension and then not express it. And that's someone who's been abused. Right. Uh, so that's the great thing about doing that for seven years. It's also the terrible thing about doing that for seven years. Because I'm not really a, a method actor per se, but when you stay in those places for that amount of time, things start to impact you. Things start to affect you in, 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 in difficult ways. So uh, it was definitely time to stop when I stopped. Well, and I just want to note the group of people who you worked with during the run of the show and for some of these into the movie as well included John Voight and James Woods all the way to Susan Sarandon. This is quite the spectrum political of spectrum. Right. <laughs> so I just wonder as sort of the, the guy at the top of the call sheet, how did you personally, I guess, approach it in a way so that you guys all kept the peace because I know that you're not apolitical, right? So this, it must've been when you, obviously all these people are tremendous actors and no comment on, on that, but was that something you kind of had to figure out a way that you were, you were all going to, you know, talk or not talk about 
real world things. Yeah. So, you know, I learned pretty early on that you're, you're better off not trying not to sleep with your co-stars. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a terribly smart thing to do. And I understand that you want to, like in the beginning, you're, you're like, you know, cause actresses are, you know, they're generally pretty beautiful yes. and, and they're talented and, and you're playing people who are in love, but those feelings are incredibly complicated to add on to the litany of things that you already have to take care of that the playwright or the writer has proscribed. So it's a bad idea. And if you learn that lesson early on, which I did, <laughs> um, then you know that all the other stuff is true as well. And there were some fights in the beginning. This is my family. These, this group of actors I love more than anyone on the face of the earth, and I miss them every day that I don't see them. And John and I had a couple of conversations, and I realized very quickly, and I, John would argue, and he would get in fights with some of the other cast who were on the absolute opposite of the political spectrum. It was a very American cast, you know, completely polarized. Um, but John and I agreed very early on, we're not going to talk about that stuff ever, ever. Like, I love you. I have your back. I will always have your back but I'm not going to talk about politics with you. Is it, you know, even, even if I agree with you, I'm not going to talk about some things we did agree on. Well, in your show span, we should just say Obama, Trump into Biden. So you guys, you guys were, had it all. Had there it was all a lot to talk yeah, about right. if we had talked, if about, it, talked about it. If you talked about it. We didn't. Um, in February, 2020, I guess a month before the world stopped, having finished your seventh season on a cliffhanger, there was some news that I know took by surprise a lot of the Donna fans, and I believe you as well, which was that that was going to be it. How did you learn that news, and how did you feel about it? They just told us we were going to get canceled. But was there any warning of that for you? Did you expect that? Yeah, I was friends with David Nevins, and he would tell me little driblets and drabs. There was a lot of things going on at the network, um, mergers and acquisitions and, you know, a television show. I'm not supposed to tell you any of this, so please <laughs> don't tell anybody what I'm about to tell you, especially not these cameras. Right. Um, but television shows, the way they work is that, you know, you sign on for five years and the show's successful, then you renew. And every time it's more successful, you renew for more money, right? Because you're doing better because the show, the network's making more money, you're making more money. So these deals become very, very expensive for the networks to sustain. So the producers, all of the actors, if you let them finish their contracts, are going to make a lot of money. And so there was a point at which the changeover happened and Showtime was picked up by this company. And this company said that's going to be a very costly show to continue because they've been successful for a while and they're probably not going to go much longer. Everybody knew that I wanted to stop. And it was just a case of, well, now I've got kids, I should keep going and, you know, college is going to be expensive. And I could Because they were going to do the, if, if the showrunner had had his way, it would have been one more season. Yeah, right? we were going to do one more season and we yeah. were preparing to wrap it up in that season. Right. So I was disappointed that we didn't, get to finish the story as we wanted to because it it's a series it's not meant to be a movie in my mind it's meant to happen slowly episodically and we had planned to end it and so i was disappointed but at the same time i was also relieved because i was tired yeah 
But then we had this huge outpouring of love and support from the fans. You know, when you act in a film or a TV show, you have no idea that anybody watches it, except they call you, they're like, hey, Ray. And I'm like, oh, I guess people are watching the show. So I didn't know that that many people loved it. I didn't know that that many people identified with the characters. I didn't know that that many people had felt some sort of catharsis or had been through something with the Catholic Church or something like that. And it was really moving to me because you suddenly realize that seven years of work that you were doing for money really moved some people right. and they loved it and they loved your characters. And that was, that meant a lot to me. So when they said how angry they were, they started to write all these negative things about Showtime and then, and then Showtime called us up and they said, would you do more? And I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't, unfortunately. No, so they were like, will you do more for no money? And I was like, we'll do a movie. Right. And so we wrote the movie and that was how we ended it. And so this is the movie essentially a, con a condensed version of what that eighth season would have been? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this dropped on Paramount Plus where it's still available back in January of this year. Ray determined to find and stop Mickey before he can do more damage. Uh, back with Eddie Marsan, Dash Myhawk, and, and of course, John Voight. Um, and you think this is truly the last, the last I round? I don't know, you know, because this was always David Nevins. This was his baby. And, and, uh, you know, David is the best producer I've ever worked with. And he, I know he loves this character. He loves this story. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear more from David. And because I love David, I'll, I'll do anything. You wouldn't but, be open to revisiting. Well, yeah, it's easy. And like when you're not doing it all the time. Right. You know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I love the character and I love the cast and I would consider it. Cool. So before we turn it over for a few questions from the audience. If I can ask you, I mean, we in the press got to hear in this same room yesterday a little bit about what you have been focused on most recently in the past year um, in terms of actually stuff that it's not entirely off screen because it's going to, you know, you guys, you've been traveling, I guess, with, with cameras to help be able to spread the word, but you have been in uh, Ukraine and doing very important work there with this organization I mentioned, Blue Check Ukraine. Can you tell, for, for people listening who are not aware, how did you get involved and what is the function of this organization and how can they help? I got involved, I think like a lot of people did, um, after the invasion, kind of sitting there helplessly on the couch, um, again, channeling my grandfather and thinking, what would he do, you know, jump off and go fight in Spain to keep fascism away. Uh, and I am much too much of a coward to <laughs> leave my kids and go fight in Ukraine as, 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 as appealing as it was for a brief period of time. But I wasn't doing anything. And the other thing that I realized is that I wasn't doing anything in front of my kids. And uh, I would watch on TV and I would see these kind of like hulking, middle-aged, balding men with cigarettes and Kalashnikovs, and I thought, wow, am I related to these guys? Because they, they look familiar to me. And watching them, you know, say goodbye to their wives and children, guys who were all walks of life, 
knowing that there was a really good chance that they'd never see them again, it just seemed just really uh, unjust to me. It seemed really horrible that in our lifetimes we should see that again, particularly as the as the grandson of a Jewish immigrant, um, that this is this kind of history is playing over again is just it's ludicrous. So some friends, also because I had made a film about Ukraine, a lot of people were calling me and asking what they should do, and I had no answer. I didn't know. And so people were just saying, well, I guess we'll just give to UNICEF or Red Cross. And that didn't seem like enough to me, so I talked to some friends who know about it, um, uh, Jason Cohn and Michael Goldfarb, who were uh, both worked at Doctors Without Borders and... Uh, um, um, Jason is now the public policy guy for Robin Hood, which is a big philanthropy group in the U.S., and, and Michael's a kind of crisis consultant for humanitarian aid. And we started to formulate this idea about figuring out a way to make it easy for Americans to give money to Ukraine and how that money could be used effectively. And so we were just sort of looking at what the problems were. The problems were that people have this mistaken notion that there's a lot of corruption in Ukraine, which, you know, pretty much since Natalie Jurescu kind of changed, the, the former minister of finance kind of turned that stuff around. It, it really hasn't been that bad. There's still black market activity and things like that. And whenever you have millions and millions of dollars of aid flowing through, uh, there's always a risk. So we decided that... Um, I would go over there and we would try to identify some NGOs and figure out how it worked. And so we went with the best NGO that we knew at the time, which was Jose Andreas's group, World Central Kitchen. And I spent um, eight days cooking with them and sort of scoping the scene in Poland and what was happening with the refugees. And we realized very quickly that need was this sort of moving target. One day it'll be food, another day it'll be shelter, another day it'll be medical aid. I mean, people don't even think about all of the people who need insulin, for example, is something that you can't get anymore. And that's a huge crisis for a country that is suddenly, you know, the pharmaceuticals are just not there. Um, not to mention the, what's happening to people who are being affected by the war. Uh, children's services, mental health stuff, all of these things. So what we started to do is we, we started to find the NGOs the people on the ground who are doing the work. And, you know, it usually isn't the big international charities. They are terrific in supporting them, but because of their marketing overhead and administrative stuff and their liability, they can't operate in country. So what they do is they subcontract these people to do the work for them. So they'll, uh, so for, here's an example uh, of a guy that I met in sort of, we learned how to do this, is that uh, I think uh, it was a series of steps, but an, an American charity, KidSave, had hired a guy named Pavlo Shula who had an orphanage. And they said, could you help us track down 117 of these KidSave orphans? And he had already been doing that because he's Ukrainian and he's, he cares about kids because he has an orphanage, so he's already evacuating children. And he says, sure, I'll do that. Give me some resources. And they gave him a little bit of money. And in the time that they hired him, and by the time I met him, he was supposed to find 117 orphans. This guy and his wife and their crew of friends with some minivans and taxis had evacuated and rescued over 10,000 displaced women and children. And this guy's doing it 
because he's motivated, because he's Ukrainian, because it's his home, and he sees the potential for his for these children to get killed and, and for these children to not have homes. So he's, he's activated. And we, that was a lesson that we learned very quickly that nobody's going to do this better than the Ukrainians. They have local access, um, the intelligence, the resources, but more than anything, they're the most motivated people to help themselves. And as I think many of you know, they're incredibly resilient and courageous people. So they're doing a really good job. They just need our help and they need the resources. So we, found NGOs that were doing different things, like Pablo and his wife were doing kids, and so we found a group that was willing to create 24-7 hotlines for trauma, like mental health trauma. We found a group that was doing cash for refugees, like just refugees walking up, giving them money. There's a group that was uh, helping to place refugees. There's a group called the Lviv Symphony that was um, an orchestra that Obviously, their touring schedule was over because the country was at war. And so they would continue to rehearse. But uh, on their breaks, they took out the seats of the theater and they filled it with boxes of medical aid and supplies. And they became this incredible distribution hub. Uh, and uh, we're, we're part of the Instant Solution, by the way, with a guy uh, who deserves credit for it. Also, an American friend of mine, a guy named Andy. Um, wow. See, there's my memory. <laughs> That's okay. Um, <laughs> I'll remember later. No problem. Um, but uh, so the only other thing that we realized we had to do was we had to find a way to verify them and to vet them. And Ropes and Gray came on and a group called Integrity Risk International. Ropes and Gray is a huge law firm in America, a really great firm. They offered us their services completely pro bono. And so they verify every NGO that we pick and all of those NGOs have to open their books to us, so the accounting is clear. You can see where your money goes. You know what's happening. This is why it's blue check. Like that's on Twitter, you're verified. That's why it's called blue check. Right. So um, we just thought that would be a really good way to do it. There was a it was a, a philanthropy site called GiveWell that did the same thing for charities and rated them. And the higher the rating, you know, you want to invest, put your money there. And we thought, you know, money would come pouring in, and it didn't. Um, it did. We had a couple of fundraisers, but what did work was the idea. And so there's all of these big corporate giving programs that are nervous about giving to state run programs. And so by using our verification process, it was a way of feeling safe about making donations. So we're on a list with people like Uber who, you know, they have that thing where a dollar of your ride will go to, we're hoping that those things will start to play out and we'll be able to and your average Joe who's listening, bluecheck.in ah, slash it's donate. Bluecheck.in, I-N, bluecheck.in is our website, which yeah. we just got going nice. for Carlo Vivari. Nice. <laughs> and bluecheck.in slash donate. Well, if you just go to bluecheck.in, there's a donate it, button, yeah. but there's information about us. Oh, that's everything. great. Uh, great, important work that you're doing there. And thank you for this. And I thank guess if we me. can... Uh, just close with maybe three sure. audience questions. So sure. if you have a question, we're going to get you a microphone. Please say your name and your question. And First question is, is there air conditioning? Yeah, I don't, not in, not anywhere in the Czech Republic. <laughs> hi, hi, Leif. Uh, thanks Hello. for being here. And Thank great you. to meet you. I'm Noah, Noah McDonald, and I'm a costume designer and stills photographer from Bali, Indonesia, but based in Prague. And so my questions are, number one, uh, do you enjoy the auditioning process and do you have any favorite funny memories in an audition room or maybe early on? 
um, in your career? And number two, um, what were your favorite locations to shoot at in all of your projects in the world? And will you have any new projects coming to Prague or the Czech Republic? I always loved auditioning. For me, it was like theater. Like finally there's somebody in the room. And I love the nerves. I was, uh, it, one of the things I loved about acting was how scared I got. It, I loved it. Everybody hated it, but I loved it. it. It was something about the channeling of fear into something else, to a kind of possession, particularly with Shakespeare, that you would feel stage fright and you would kind of, I had this ritual where I would drink uh, a toast to my grandfather before I went on, before every show. And it started out as wine. Over time, it became whiskey. <laughs> and I, my grandfather told me a story about, about al the reason that alcohol is called spirits is because in the old times, they believed that you got drunk because when you drank the alcohol, you were letting the spirits into your body. And then the spirits, the spirits possessed you. And I love that story. So before I would go on, I would do my warm up. I put my costume on and I would toast my grandfather and I would drink the spirits and I would become possessed. And I'd become this like crazy person who could do things that Liev couldn't do. And that was how I always felt at auditions. I was a very confrontational person and aggressive and like, I don't give a shit if you like me or not. Like if that was my attitude, like, I, and that was, I think, successful for auditions, except with Brian De Palma. I got an audition for Brian De Palma, and uh, I was very excited because he was a big, famous director. And uh, I went down to his office on One Fifth Avenue, and he was there with a cigar, and uh, he was looking at a book that he had, and he didn't look up once. And I said, "Hello, my name's Liev." And uh, today I prepared something from you. It's a monologue of And he's like, I said, okay, so I'm just going to start. And I started the monologue and he didn't look up once, did not look up once. And I stopped the monologue and I stood there and I was like, am I actually going to hit Brian De Palma right now? Because <laughs> I was thinking, I might go smack this guy in the head. Yeah. I want to go see what's up. Yeah. I didn't. So I just went <laughs> like that. And he didn't look up. Oh my God. And I walked out of the office and uh, obviously I didn't get that role. <laughs> but two years, uh, no, four years later, Brian De Palma and I were on a jury together in Cognac, France. And uh, that, was a, that was a funny dinner. Um, what was your other question? Was my favorite locations? My favorite locations. Uh, Naomi did a movie called The Impossible. She was extraordinary. Yeah. And we shot that in Phuket in Thailand. And I got to meet all these incredible Thai people who had been through the tsunami and they were just such amazing people. And I had my kids with me and my kids were two and three, which is like a very special time. And there was surf there and I didn't have to work and she was working and I would just surf every day and hang out with the kids and eat crabs. And that was my favorite time. Little did you know that you were Spider-Man's stepfather there, right? Yeah, Future Spider-Man. <laughs> that Tom Holland, <laughs> Tom that's Holland, right. right. Tom Holland, right. And Tom Holland was this little kid who was playing Naomi's son. And the most charming, the most charming kid you could ever meet in your life. I loved him. Everybody loved him. And when I heard that he was going to get Spider-Man, I was like, it couldn't happen to a better guy. On top of that, at that point, he was already a dancer. And I was a dancer, too. So I really admired people who had been through that discipline and he could do incredible things with his body. So I was, when they said he, they picked him for Spider-Man, I was like, this is going to be special. Awesome. Um, 
Yeah, did I get all your questions? Yeah, and lastly, if, if you're going to have a project in Prague or Czech Republic anytime Oh, we soon? have a project in Prague right now. Ah. I'm doing, um, I'm playing Otto Frank in a movie about Meep Geese, who is the Dutch woman who hid the Franks. And I, it's really, really well written. It reminded me um, in many ways of what I thought about Spotlight, that it, it's written with intention and it's very contemporary. And the idea, which I'm sure Czech people can relate to, is uh, the generosity and goodwill towards our neighbors in times of trouble. And that's something that I think is super, super powerful and um, really well done in this script. I'm Machtold. I'm a film distributor from Amsterdam. I was wondering, you said something about all the playwrights disappearing. And of course, you mentioned your love for theater and for film. We distribute quite a lot of films that were first theater pieces, such as The Father last year or The Party. I'm a big fan. I was wondering if that's something you would consider ever doing. Or do you think making a theater play into a film is tainting it in some way? It's very difficult. Yeah. Because they're not designed for film. Cinema is a... Yeah. And, and, you know, for the long time, because of where I come from, because I was a theater actor and my ambitions was... One of my initial ambitions was really to to do something with naturalism around Shakespeare and to do a really good Shakespeare film. And over time, of course, because of where I come from, I was always trying to adapt plays. It's very, very, very difficult. And I think part of the reason it's difficult is because great plays are written with an audience in mind and films aren't. It's a particular type of conversation. You know, in theater, there's a much bigger suspension of belief, right? Like we're watching a play. We know it's not real. We know the sets are made out of cardboard. We know those are actors. The, this, the time doesn't play out the way it does in a film. You can't create all of that illusion. So there's something about a play where your suspension of belief is greater that doesn't happen in film. Film can't help but veer towards verite and naturalism. Hopefully we're going to have some really exciting new films that try to break out of that. And people do, but it's very rare. And so I like plays... It's very hard to get them from the proscenium to the camera. At least that's my experience with it. Hello, my name is Lucia, and thank you for coming and for being here. I just want to take the opportunity to ask you if you have any personal advice for somebody who wants to work for the film industry. In general, because of your careers, actor, producer, director, but we can focus more on the acting part. You know, I was talking to, um, I was talking to uh, Edward Hey, I had dinner with the Prime Minister of Slovakia last night. It was really interesting and really, um, I think he's a really interesting guy, but we were talking about public speaking and the key to uh, public speaking. And this sounds like a cliche, but it, 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 gen it generally proves true, which is be yourself, be confident and relax and don't oversell. You know, um, know yourself, you know. I, 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 and I think that process of making mistakes and reaching for things that might not be right or is all great and feel confident in it. But it, know where you're comfortable and know what your strengths are and, and play to those. Hello, Mr. Schreiber. I would like to ask about the movie called Movie 43. Oh, dear. It's one of the most craziest movies I ever saw. And I wanted to ask what came up to your mind when you first read the script for the movie. 
I didn't read the script. <laughs> Nobody did. This is a, um, a friend of mine, Charlie Wessler, who I used to have a house in upstate New York and we used to hang out together and we go fishing and swimming and he's just the funniest guy in the world and I would always had fun with him and Naomi and I hung out with him all the time and he put this film together and he just asked all of his friends to do it and he said there was no script and so we could see our script and my script was just bizarre and I thought it would be fun and I just always loved, I loved the opportunities to work with Naomi and I read Hughes, Hugh was doing something where he had testicles on his chin <laughs> and I was like, why would Hugh do that? And I thought, well, it must be really great. And I think that's what all the other actors thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, so come back to your best advice. Read the script, right? Yeah, read the script. Make sure you read the script. <laughs> well, thank you all for coming. Thank you so much, Leo Schreiber. Great to have you. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.